0: Thanks, Delaney, Timbits. Thank you. All right, who here has been to Cedar Point? And all my students are like, yeah. So I have been, I tried to count it up the other day. And I counted 17 times. I could have missed a couple. Um, It's close to 20 times. I used to go every summer when I was in in high school. I went through college, and now I'm a youth pastor. So I've gone at least once every year since I became a a youth pastor because students want to go to Cedar Point. But I have been around 20 times, so I'm kind of an expert on Cedar Point. I've been on all the rides. I can tell you which ones are worth waiting in line for, which ones are not worth waiting in line for. Uh, I can tell you which ones, if you're going to go to Cedar Point, which ones you need to really go on to experience Cedar Point and honestly after going close to 20 times I would really say there's only one ride in the park that you need to go on and that ride's the Millennium Force. Who's been on that ride? It's, that is great. So many people have been on that ride. It, it, if you haven't, it's massive. It, its first drop is 300 feet. It, it maxes out at 93 miles an hour. It is an awesome ride. Now Even though I know how awesome this ride is, I've been 20 times every year, I forget how great that ride is. Because I get off that ride every time, and the first thing I say is, I did not remember, or I forgot how intense that roller coaster was. I know it's a great ride, I can tell people it's a great ride, but but when I get on the ride, I'm reminded of how great that ride actually is. If I don't remind myself how thrilling this ride is. By actually going and riding it, I, I, I kind of lose the significance of it, right? I know it's good, but, but I don't really fully understand why. I do the same thing with movies. If you, ask me, uh, if you ask me what my favorite movie is, I'll tell you The Dark Knight. And if you ask me why, I don't really have a good reason. I, like I just like Batman. I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, here's my list of 10 reasons why this is my favorite movie. But... Every time I sit down and watch that movie, I'm like, all right, guys, I can do it. I think I can be Batman. And then I remember why I like this movie so much. It's an awesome movie, but I don't remember how good it is until I actually sit down and watch it. Now, some of you might not relate to Batman and roller coasters. But maybe, maybe you've got a good friend that you don't see very often. You see him maybe once, maybe twice a year. And when you finally get together, you remember how much you enjoy that person's company. You you know what I'm talking about? You guys ever felt this way? Yeah. Yeah. So I I think, uh, I mean, a lot of us, we do this in a bunch of different ways, right? There's amazing things in our life, but if we don't remind ourselves why those things are so good, we, we forget a little bit and they kinda lose their significance. And I think that all of us do this with the gospel as well. We know the gospel's good. We have no problem telling people that the gospel is good news. But we tend to lose our sense of awe and wonder that we should have for the gospel because I don't think we take enough time to really dwell on it and remind ourselves why the gospel is such good news. So that's my goal today. We're we're looking at Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 31. And I hope that as we walk through this passage, you'll be reminded why the gospel is so good, and why we should be excited about it. Now, we are jumping into the middle of a book, so I wanna catch you up real quick. We've, we've skipped three and a half chapters, so I'm gonna summarize that, but I'm gonna do it with just three quick, three quick statements. So number one, Paul says that God is righteous. God is righteous, that means that God is morally perfect. He always does what is right. The second thing is that all people are sinners. So God is righteous, morally perfect. We are sinners, and that means we are morally imperfect. And number three, the third thing that Paul says leading up to this passage, is that all sinners are under God's wrath. And the wrath of God is God's hatred of and his punishment for sin. Because God is righteous, he must punish sin and you and I are sinful. Do you see the problem here? Right, our situation is not very good. We are all sinners and therefore we are under God's wrath. The only way to avoid God's wrath is to be righteous. So then the question we need to answer then is how does a sinner become righteous? How can a sinful human being be made righteous? And that's the focal point of Romans 3, 21 through 31. That's the question that Paul is going to answer for us today. So please read with me. We're going to read verse 21, and then the first half of verse 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe These first two words in verse 21 are extremely important. They're small words. They might not seem significant, but but many commentators write that these are the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. Why is that? Because that seems like a bold statement. There's a lot of good things in the Bible. So what about these two little words is so special? Well, it's connected to what, what Paul just wrote about in the first three and a half chapters and what I just briefly recapped for you. All people are sinners and under the the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. But now, something has changed. The situation is different now, Paul says. He, He says that the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law, and the law and the prophets testify to it. But now, the righteousness that you and I need has appeared. That's the righteousness of God. See, we're already sinners. There's nothing that we can do to undo that. We're no longer righteous. If you've sinned once, you are not righteous. So, the only way for us to avoid the wrath of God is for God to make us righteous. And his plan to do that has now arrived. And Paul says that God's plan, it doesn't, uh, God's plan to make us righteous, it doesn't require works of the law. When Paul talks about the law in this verse, he's referring to the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now many Jews in the Old Testament and many in Paul's day believe that the way that you could become righteous and avoid the wrath of God was if you obeyed the law. You kept the Mosaic Law, if you you tried hard enough, if you did your best, um, if you obeyed it as much as you could, then you could become righteous enough and then you could avoid God's wrath and judgment. Essentially, they believe that you could earn your own salvation. Now this is not an uncommon line of thinking. This is pretty much every religion that's not Christianity. Let's take Islam for example though. Muslims don't believe that people are sinful by nature. They believe they have the capacity in themselves to be good. So the way that they attain salvation then is by being a good person. There's five pillars in their faith that you have to follow. Uh, you have to, there's a confession, the proclaiming of their faith. There's almsgiving, fasting, pilgrimage to Mecca, and I'm losing the other one, the daily prayers. So if you do all five of those things, and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you can be saved, you can go to heaven. You have established your own righteousness. And you could add to that, like I said, any other religion. Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, any of them are based on your merit and your accomplishment. The goal of all of them is to make sure that your goodness outweighs your badness. But Paul says it doesn't work like that. God doesn't count all our good and bad deeds up, put them on the scale and judge us by whatever one we have the most of. God's metric for judging people is righteous or unrighteous. Sinner or not a sinner. And if you've sinned once, you are not righteous, and therefore you are under the wrath of God, and there's no amount of good works you can do to make you righteous. That's what the Jews missed. The Old Testament law was and still is a good thing, but the Jewish people didn't understand its purpose. See, the Jews were God's chosen people. They enjoyed a special relationship with Him, and God gave them the Old Testament law, and that law governed their relationship with God. kept the law, if they obeyed it, God would bless them. But if they rebelled against God and disobeyed that law, He would curse them. But what God never told them was that this law is going to make you righteous. That's where they went wrong. Like every other religion, they thought they could just try hard enough, obey enough, be good enough, and and then God would count them righteous. They thought they could make themselves righteous. But that was never on the table. That's not what the law was supposed to do. In fact, the law's purpose was to help God's people understand that as much as they might try, they're utterly incapable of being righteous. It's supposed to show them their deep need for God to come and make them righteous. And that's what the law and the prophets, when Paul says law and the prophets together like that, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. See, Paul says the entire Old Testament was pointing to this fact that we need God to come and make us righteous. And that has always been God's plan, that people would be declared righteous based on their faith in Jesus. So when Paul said that the righteousness of God has been manifested, he wasn't talking about some new plan that God designed, but that God's plan to save sinners had been fully revealed because God's plan for salvation was always justification by faith. And if you're taking notes, that's principle number one. God's plan for salvation was always justification by faith. Now justification is a legal term. It means to declare one righteous. So when God justifies you, you are deemed righteous in his sight. So that was the plan, that you would be deemed righteous based on your faith in Jesus. Now, let's continue reading, and we're going to see how Paul continues to develop this idea of justification. So pick back up in 22b, and we'll read through 26. "'For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith.'" This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I, I have a nine-month-old daughter. She's adorable, most of you have met her. Most of you have told me you wanna take her home. Um, you, you don't, I promise, she's really cute here, but when we get home, she starts crying. Um, no, she, she is awesome. She is adorable. She is just the best person. And it's hard for me to picture her doing anything wrong. Now, I know that all of you veteran parents are like, oh, just wait, Pastor Garrett, because she's going to turn two or three, and then she'll be a monster. I know. I know that day is coming. But for now, I want to enjoy this time where I can pretend that she's never going to do anything wrong. But, but I'm, not, I'm not dumb. I, I know that in reality just like everybody else, she is by nature completely sinful. All of us are, and all of us know that to be true of ourselves. How many of us can go even a week or a day without sinning, without a single impure thought? How many of us grumble or complain daily? Everyone's hand should probably be up. Maybe not everybody. There's some really patient people. But, but God talks all through his word about grumbling and complaining. That is sinful. How many of us can't help gossiping about or slandering others? How many of us turn into a crazy rage monster every time we get behind the wheel of a car? If you've ever been impatient, if you've ever lied, if you've ever lusted, if you've ever coveted, if you've done any of these things and you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, you've come up short, you have sinned, you have not met God's standard of what it means to be righteous. So the only hope that you have is justification through faith in Jesus. And what Paul does here, now he dives deeper into what makes this justification possible. So he writes that justification is an act where where God declares us righteous, but it is a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we are owed. It's not something that we can earn. But while justification is a free gift of grace given to us, that gift of grace still had to be paid for and we know that's true because the way that Paul connects, uh, connects justification with the redemption that is found in Jesus. And I just want to pause real quick. That word redemption, it's a good word. That'd make, make a good church name, don't you think? I agree. But the, the word redemption, it, it, it's the idea of, of paying a ransom. In the Old Testament, it could be used uh, to, to get somebody released who is on death, death row. When Paul uses it in the New Testament, he's always speaking about Jesus redeeming us. But if you go outside the New Testament and look at other Greek writings, uh, then we see that it's used constantly to talk about freeing prisoners of war or freeing slaves through the payment of a ransom or of a price. And that use of redemption makes a lot of sense here because if you look at all the places in the Bible where, where, they, where it talks about sinners, where it describes sinful people, we're described as being enslaved to sin, trapped in our sin, we're dead in our sin. All of us are powerless against the hold that sin has on us. All of us are under the wrath of God, headed towards eternal punishment. We're prisoners to sin, we are on death row in our sin. But praise God because there is redemption in Jesus Christ. And as we can as we keep going in verse 25, you see that this redemption came at a great cost. It says that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. When it says that, that he was put forward, this Greek word means that he was put on display. This, this was a public spectacle. This was not a behind-the-scenes type of event. Like in the Old Testament, when the high priest on the, on the Day of Atonement would go to uh, make a sacrifice for the sins of Israel, he would make that sacrifice, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies. Behind the curtain, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That was away from view. No one could actually see what was happening. But God wanted everybody to see that the price for, for our redemption, for your redemption, was paid So he put Jesus out on display as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's a big word there, propitiation. To propitiate means to appease or to satisfy. So when Jesus was put forth as our propitiation, that means that he was put forth to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. Now some people, a lot of commentators in recent history have tried to go away from this idea of propitiation because they're not really comfortable with the idea of God's wrath and judgment. So they want to emphasize the forgiveness, the mercy, the love of God without also being honest about the wrath and the judgment of God. But you cannot separate God from his wrath. It's a part of who he is. Just as much as love or mercy or grace is a part of who God is, his wrath is a part of who he is. It's a necessary, vital part of the gospel. Because if God is not wrathful, he cannot be just. It is not possible. One is required to have the other. When I was a younger Christian, there was one question that I, that I always struggled with. Um, I, I asked it of myself. I had heard my, my non-Christian friends ask it. Even now, I still see my, my atheist and non-Christian friends ask questions along these lines. And, and that question is, if God can do anything, if he's all-powerful, as you say he is, why not just forgive? What's the point of the cross? Like, God could just snap his fingers and everybody's forgiven unconditionally, no questions asked, there's no need for the cross, no need for hell, no need for wrath. And, and I struggled with how to answer this question for a long time, and, and maybe you guys have wrestled with this question as well. Why does there need to be wrath? Well, I want you to imagine there's a man on trial for murder. They caught this guy red-handed. They've got all the evidence they need to put him away for life. They got the murder weapon, the murder weapon. They got his DNA at the crime scene. They got a the video. They got eyewitnesses. Everything they need to put this man away. He is guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt. But when it comes time for the judge to sentence the man, the judge refuses. Instead. He looks at the man and he says, I I know you're guilty, but I forgive you. You're free to go. Is that justice? Certainly not. Now imagine that same judge does this with every single criminal brought before him. Whether it's murder, whether it's fraud, assault, theft, whatever you want it to be. Whether it's a giant crime or, or a tiny crime. No matter what, he says, I know you're guilty, but you're free to go. I forgive you the only conclusion that any of us would draw is that this judge is not just. He either doesn't know what right and wrong are or he's just completely unconcerned with what right and wrong are. No one in their right mind would believe that this man is qualified to sit in judgment over anybody else. And I would argue that the same is true of God. If he allowed us to sin over and over, never judging that sin, never holding us accountable for our wickedness, I think you could call his justice into question. And so does Paul. That's what Paul's getting at here. How can God declare sinners righteous but still be a God of justice? Propitiation is the answer. The answer was that Jesus was put forth as our propitiation by his blood. Jesus going to the cross, it was kind of did two things. It satisfied God's wrath against us and it made God's forgiveness available to us. We usually get that second one. We don't often talk about the first one, but they are both necessary. That's the beauty of the cross. It's where God's mercy and wrath meet. All of God's wrath on our sin was exhausted on Jesus. So for anybody who puts their faith in him, there's no more wrath left for you. All of it's gone. Every bit of it poured out and satisfied on the person of Jesus Christ when he hung on that cross. That's why we can be declared righteous. That's why God can say you'll be justified by faith because the punishment was paid. God's wrath was satisfied. It was propitiated. And if you look at the second half of verses 25 and then into 26, you see that this applies to the Old Testament saints as well. Abraham was justified by faith. He had faith, so God declared him righteous. But like us, Abraham's sins still had to be paid for. The wrath of God on Abraham's sin still needed to be satisfied, but God was patient. He passed over Abraham's sins for a short time. He didn't require that payment immediately because he knew that Jesus was the only one that could make that payment. So he was patient in his divine forbearance, he passed over those former sins, looking forward to the time when Jesus would come and bear the wrath for our sin. And so in that way, both Old Testament saints and New Testament Christians, Christians today, are justified by faith. But that justification, that redemption, came at a very high price. But in doing it this way, God showed us that he can make us righteous even though we don't deserve it <clears throat> excuse me even though we don't deserve it and still be a just god the death of jesus on the cross demonstrated that god could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus the weight of all of our sin every single sin that we have ever committed placed on his shoulders and he bore the full wrath of god's hatred of our sin All of God's judgment poured out on him so you and I could be saved. Do you see what Paul is saying here? What is our contribution to salvation? The the only thing that Paul tells us here is sinning and falling short of God's glory. That's it. The only contribution that you and I make to our salvation is needing that salvation in the first place. That's, That's the whole point here. We have sinned, we deserve the punishment for that sin, but Jesus took it so we did not have to. Like with every sentence, it's like Paul screaming at us, it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. That's what he's doing, he's drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus did everything for us. And that's principle number two, Jesus bore the full wrath of God so that we could be justified by faith. Jesus bore the full wrath of God so that we could be justified by faith. Christ redeemed us. Christ was the propitiation that made forgiveness possible. Christ paid the price so that God could declare us righteous. Every single aspect of our salvation was accomplished by Jesus Christ, period. All right, let's keep moving and look at the last five verses here, uh, verses 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded, or it is excluded, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So it should be pretty clear by now that our salvation is wholly dependent on Jesus. We have no role in accomplishing any part of it. But if you miss that, Paul lays it on pretty thick here. And he does that through a series of questions. And these questions, are, they're either criticisms that he's gotten from, from the Jewish people in his day, or he's trying to anticipate how the Jewish people are going to critique his teaching. But either way, his intention is the same. He asks, what becomes of our boasting? Where do we get to take credit? What part did we play? And the obvious answer is, you don't get to take credit. You didn't do anything. Why would you get to boast? You have no right because Jesus did everything. And then Paul asks, well, what kind of law is it that excludes our boasting? When Paul uses the word law here in verse 27, he's using it differently than when he did in verse 21. So here in 27, he's not speaking specifically about the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament law would probably fall into this category. But the law of works, as Paul's describing it here, is any way of attempting to gain God's favor based on our own effort or merit. And then when he says the law of faith, he means that the favor or grace that God shows to us is based on our faith in Jesus. And I just wanted to stop and explain that because he uses the word law in a couple different ways and that can get confusing. But here in verse 27, you could rightly say the way of works or the way of faith. So Paul says it's the way of faith that eliminates our boasting. If we could be saved by our own good works, we'd have plenty of reason to boast, we'd be pretty awesome, we'd be righteous of our own accord. But because we can't do that, because we need to be saved by Jesus, we have nothing to boast about. That's why in Galatians six, Paul says that if we do boast, it has to be in the cross of Christ. Now boasting in the cross of Christ is kinda like rooting for your favorite sports team. Everyone likes to talk smack about their rival team, they like to talk about how great their team is, and when we do that, we love to talk as if we've contributed to our team's success. Yeah, we slapped you guys last game. Oh, we're winning it all next year. We are undefeated. We apply their successes to ourselves even though we've made no contribution. In the same way, if we boast, it must be in what Jesus has accomplished, not in anything that we've done. But that's a good thing. The fact that we made no contribution to our salvation, that should be an incredible comfort to us, How many of you have ever felt like God was, was tired of you or irritated with you? Like, you've, you've told God 15 times, I'm not going to do this again. I'm sorry, God. Forgive me. I'm not going to do this anymore. And then the next day, the next week, you continue to do those things over and over and over. You guys ever felt like that? You just feel like he's frustrated with you. He's got to be up there like, man, I can't believe I sent Jesus to die for this guy, this person. But that's not how it works. If your standing before God is based on Jesus, then nothing you do, good or bad, will change God's affection for you. Reading your Bible every day will not make God love you more. If you don't read it every day, he will not love you less. If you don't show up to church for, for a month, he doesn't love you less. He doesn't love you more if you showed up every single day of the week. Now now those are good things and we should do those things, but they have no bearing on your standing before God. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, future, all of them. So when we do sin, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father saying, nope, it's covered, I paid for it. the, The wrath has already been poured out. And then our standing before God doesn't change. God still looks at you as if you are righteous. Because our salvation isn't isn't based on us and it's based on Jesus, we can't do anything to lose it. That should bring us great comfort because we are very, very sinful people. Now, as Paul keeps moving into verse 28, it might seem like he's repeating himself but I don't, think he, I don't think he's just trying to repeat himself to recap, I, this is actually a really important part of his argument. Paul uses a, a general term uh, for the word man here. And it applies to any human being anywhere in the world, just any person. Translating it literally would read, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And I wish that the ESV had translated it that way because I think it captures what Paul's trying to say. Paul uses that vague language because he wants us to see that there is only one way for people to be justified. There's only one process for sinners being declared righteous. So Paul's focus in verse 28 is not how people are justified. It's that all people are justified in the same way. There are not different paths to righteousness. There are not different paths to get to God. There is one single way, and his name is Jesus, And he continues this line of thinking in the next set of rhetorical questions. He says, is is God only the God of the Jews? Or is he the God of the Gentiles also? Of course he's the God of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, if you aren't aware with that that term, it's anybody that's not Jewish. But the Jewish people would agree with Paul that God is the God of all people. They, They would say, yes, God created all people, therefore he is God over all of them. But the problem with the Jewish people is they also believe that God's favor and grace was reserved only for the Jewish people and the few Gentiles who were willing to obey the Old Testament law and then adopt all of the customs of being a Jewish person. This is what we talked about earlier. The Jews believed the only way to be saved was to do it themselves, to keep the law. But Paul's saying is that this would restrict salvation primarily just to the Jewish people because they were the ones that received the Old Testament law in the first place. And Paul's saying this can't be the case. God is the God of all people. If there's really one way of salvation, and there is, it would be available to everybody. And you hear all the time that each religion is a different path to God. Nope, it's not what Paul says. Paul says the exact opposite. There is one God, he provided one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Jesus. And then finally, verse 31, Paul has one more issue to address. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. If our works do nothing to merit merit grace or favor from God, does our faith eliminate the need for good works? That's the question Paul's asking. And the answer he gives is, may it never be. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's the opposite. Just because our good works don't save us doesn't make them unimportant. They're extremely important. Being saved by faith in Jesus does not give us a license to sin. In fact, our faith should motivate us to be more like God. It should produce good works in us. This passage, Romans three twenty-one through 31, all the way through the end of chapter five, form a single unit. And that whole unit is concerned with justification by faith. And then when you get to Romans chapter six, the first verse, Paul answers the same question again. Do we go on sinning because we're under the grace of God? And he says, absolutely not. As Christians mature, they should sin less and obey God more. So justification by faith is the only way to God, but that faith should produce good works. That's principle number three. Justification by faith is the only way to God but that faith should produce good works. And we see this idea clearly demonstrated throughout God's word, but probably one of the most clearly, one of the clearest areas is Ephesians 2, verses eight through 10. It says, "'For by grace you have been saved through faith, "'and this is not your own doing. "'It is the gift of God, "'not a result of works, "'so that no one may boast. "'For we are his workmanship, "'created in Christ Jesus for good works.'" which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Works do not save us, they do not change our standing before God, but they are the natural result of faith. Jesus redeemed us from sin and death. We talk about that all the time and we should because that is a great and good thing. But we oftentimes forget to talk about the fact that Jesus didn't just redeem us from something, he redeemed us to something. He redeemed us to a new life in Christ so that we could be obedient, so that we could produce these good works that are pleasing to God. So the person you are before you put your faith in Jesus cannot be the same person you are after you put your faith in Jesus. And just because we're saved by our faith does not mean that we don't do good works. Our faith saves us, our faith is, what, uh, is also what makes us capable of doing good works in the first place. Now if we boil all this down, we get our big idea. And this is, this is the main idea, this is what Paul is getting at, if you hear anything else, it should be this, God has one plan for salvation, justification by faith in Jesus. God has one plan for salvation, justification, by faith in Jesus. There's always been one plan for God to save sinful people. And that plan was that we would be declared righteous, not because of how good we are, but because of how good Jesus is, because of our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God can declare us righteous because his wrath on our sin was satisfied. The price was paid, justice was served, the wrath was poured out. The gospel is a mind blowing display, not just of God's love and mercy, but also of his justice and wrath. Those are equally important here. And I hope that today as we've walked through this, you've been reminded of how incredible this gospel truly is. Don't let yourself forget the magnitude of the gospel. Don't lose that awe for what Jesus has done on your behalf. I mean, we should dwell on the reality of the gospel every day, draw near to God daily, meditate on all that Jesus has done for you, and let that drive you to greater faithfulness and good works. Now, before we close, I wanna give you guys two applications. Number one, keep the gospel in its proper place. Keep the gospel in its proper place. As a church we have to do this. If we lose this, if the gospel is not where it should be, we are not even worthy of being called a church. That's the warning we saw last week in Revelation 2. Everything we do has to be to demonstrate and proclaim this truth. So we need to remind ourselves often that every ministry we do, it's not just something we do so people have a place to go and get, it's not just something we do for fun. It is not about us, it's about Jesus proclaiming him and him crucified, pro- proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Everything we do here must be to exalt our Savior and point people to him. That means that your ministry, the ways that you serve here at church, it's not about showing others how gifted you are. It's about showing others how good Jesus is. Because the moment that you get Prideful, or the moment that you get territorial, maybe because somebody's wanting to serve in the same position that you serve in, your service is no longer about the gospel. It's about you, and your service is worthless. There is no value to that kind of service. If we as a church become so concerned about meeting the physical needs of the community that we lose sight of the spiritual need for the gospel, then the gospel is not in its proper place. Now, both are important. But our first priority always has to be their need for the gospel. When we insist on our own ways, our preferences, our traditions, when we're stirring up strife and division, the gospel is not in its proper place. And if the gospel is not in its proper place, then we've lost our first love. And those of you that were here last week know what the punishment for that is. Jesus said he will come and take our lampstand. Take away the fact that we are even a church. Everything we do must be with the good news of the gospel in mind. So that's number one. Number two, put your trust in Jesus. I would be foolish to think that there's nobody here today that has not placed their faith in Jesus. Maybe you've heard the gospel before, but you've never embraced the salvation and the freedom it offers, maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never heard the gospel explained as Paul explains it here in Romans 3. Whatever that reason may be, I urge you to put your faith in Jesus today. Because apart from Jesus, you are under the wrath of God. You are headed towards eternal punishment. You have sinned against an eternal God and that warrants eternal punishment. But man, there is grace and life to be had in Jesus Christ. He bore the wrath of God, so that we would not have to. Because he knew that we couldn't. Jesus made salvation available to all who believe. It is a free gift, but it's a gift that we must accept by faith. And that means that you confess your sinfulness to God. You proclaim that you believe that Jesus' work was sufficient, that you believe that he really was crucified and raised from the dead. And then you ask God to forgive you of your sins, to help you turn from your sin and to transform your heart so that you can live for him. Putting your faith in Jesus means that you look to him as both your savior and the Lord of your life. And if you've never done that, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, never trusted him as your savior and Lord, I invite you to do that today. And if you feel that God is leading you to make that decision, I ask that you would come and talk with me, come and talk with one of our other leaders, maybe the person that you came with. But talk to them about this after the service. We would love to pray with you, love to talk more with you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus and follow him. But I cannot urge you enough, if you have never taken that step, take that step today. Briefly before, before I, I close in prayer, I, I want to say just a couple things about communion, because we're, we're about to go to Communion. Um, we're doing that downstairs in the fellowship hall again. Um, we do ask that if you partake in us, that you are, partake with us, that you are a believer. You don't have to be a member here. Nobody's a member here yet, so it works out perfectly. But you, you do need to be a believer. But we are going to go back downstairs. So after I close, after I, uh, after I pray, um, we're going to do one more song. And If you need a little bit of extra time to get downstairs for whatever reason, uh, go ahead and get up and start making your way down there during that last song. But when we get down there, um, go down there silently, take your cup, and just take a few moments to reflect on the good news of the gospel and to get your heart right before the Lord. And once we're all downstairs, we've had a few moments to do that. I'll read a brief passage, and then we will eat together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace. We are so grateful for your wrath that you are a God of justice and Lord we praise you for sending your son to bear the punishment, to bear the wrath that we could not bear Lord I am so grateful that our salvation is not based on our own merit but on the merit of Jesus Christ Lord if there is anybody in here this afternoon that does not know you I pray that you would stir their heart that they would recognize their sinfulness before you and that they would repent and put their faith in you